to the Psychomedia podcast. I am Timothy Swan. And I'm Ben Fell. And this week we will not be discussing the funny side of psychology. We will have had have done. We <laughs> Tense is failing. Yeah, so this week, well, we'll find out what I did this week that means I couldn't do preparation this week later. Um, this week. We'll be serving up a dish of old and forgotten studies. Um, Dismembered chunks of Psychomedia. Yeah, yeah. Um, Delicious bite-sized nuggets. Before before we move into teaming up like... Uh, Sound bite-sized nuggets. <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say uh, Lord <laughs> Byron and Mary Shelley, but I figured that's maybe not a great analogy. Greatest slash fiction ever. Um, I think they did actually have a relationship <laughs> then. I think it's not made up. that. I mean, the greatest slash fiction is historical records of people having actual relationships, in my opinion. Because then it's canon. And not oh, only yeah. is it canon, but it's canon to reality. Uh, right, okay. Well, that's a little insight into the deeper recesses of your psyche. Well, thinking of insights into the deeper recesses of my psyche, uh, Charlie Etheridge Nunn, our Charlie Nunn, because there's a Charlie Nunn who wrote into the Bugle about playing the Bugle to biological cultures. I thought, well, it could be the Charlie Nunn that I know who listens to our show, but apparently not. He hadn't heard of the Bugle, so I may have cost us some listening attention from <laughs> Charlie Nunn. Anyway, that was uh, a different Gladly time. given, gladly given. Uh, this time, Charlie Etheridge Nunn wishes me congratulations on declaring a new nemesis. And I, I thank you, Charlie. I mean, it wasn't a planned nemesis. Sometimes you just fall in nemesis. It's nemesis at first sight. Um, you can't hurry, nemesis. You just have to wait. All you need is a nemesis. In this case, Mark Chapman. Um, okay. How deep is your nemesis? Um... I'm sure I've already told you about this uh, brilliant song about how, although it's sad that John Lennon died, it is kind of better for him in the long run because he hasn't <laughs> done a woeful appearance on Nevermind the Buzzcocks or mm. a terrible re-release of his songs or try to do the Olympics opening ceremony when he doesn't have the voice for it anymore. Ooh, burn. Burn. Uh, uh, so, uh, do you have any you feedback? You may have grown old gracefully. I think that's unlikely I because so one, Yoko Ono, and two... <laughs> He had already, like, destroyed a lot of his legacy. Have you listened to Double Fantasy? I have not. Don't listen to Double Fantasy. Very well. I Even the John Lennon half. I will integrate that as a central tenet of my life philosophy from now on. That's a good point. Um, so, yeah, do you have any feedback, Ben? Uh, I have a little bit of feedback uh, from Das Christina Frau. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that one is really going to be popular. <laughs> yeah, not at all. I oh, think... oh, oh, Ben, let's think of another language we, that we can translate. Um, well, Two seconds. You that, feedback. Uh, das Christina Fraulein, who uh, who listened to the pod, who was doing a bit of catch up listening to the podcast, and came across the bit where uh, I mentioned that we'd maybe slightly had uh, a, nearly had a scrape in the car when we went to the garden centre. Uh, and she pointed this out, and I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to bring that up. Oh, no. Uh, which is gross exaggeration, obviously. Uh, and she was like, no, it's fine, we did nearly crash the car. So, that was good. Hooray. That's my yeah, bit of feedback. It's really not very in-depth. Um, Unlike some people. 
car. Well, dear. Thinking of horrific and terrifying car journeys, <laughs> this week, oh, and by this week, I mean yesterday, and I still kind of am recovering from this, I had to drive to the south coast. Oh, uh, God. South coast is a long way away, and it's all on the motorway, and there is literally no good alternative route. Um, and uh, if you're driving... There is know, one alternative. Uh, fly. Oh, oh right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, I think we should call from now on, apparently, uh, Christine. <laughs> Christine. <laughs> it makes us sound like an Italian bready, like, like, side dish. Yeah, um, but that is apparently what it is in Welsh. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, I uh, had to go to Dawlish in uh, Devon. Uh, it's near Exeter, and I have a new car, which is good. It's quite a light car, and it, the crosswinds were quite terrifying. So I was pretty stressed by the time. But yeah, the reason we are doing a Franken podcast this week instead of a real podcast is because I had to be preparing a ten-minute presentation on mental health with no jokes. And so it takes that's you a mental health. A presentation on mental health with no jokes, not a presentation on mental health with no jokes. Yeah, because I don't even understand that topic. Mental health, no jokes. <laughs> Maybe jokes. Maybe it's laughter. Such is... an intrinsically funny subject. Oh yeah, it's not just any mental health. Severe and enduring mental health problems. Um, I think I did okay. I don't know. Um, and then I had to drive back. And oh, but the thing is, just motorway driving, right? So now I got back to Bristol. I'm like, finally, a chance to choose a roads. Oh look, it's only twenty minutes longer on a roads. Except it won't be because I was going about fifty-five on the motorway because overtaking people whilst being buffeted by winds was like. Yeah. Ah! Not and you good. get to past Bristol where it's like, oh, by the way, now we're going to put you up on a huge thing on a hill uh, and separate the lanes. So you're just kind of on different. Oh, I don't like wind. Um, so I'm hoping that there'll be no wind. Coming. The elements are really against you for the last couple of weeks, haven't they? Yeah, weather weather is my enemy. Today it's sunny. I bet I'm going to go out and end up with sunburn on my neck or something. Clearly, cl- like clearly haven't made enough kind of benef- bene- benedictions, benefactions, sacrifices, whatever to uh, Thor. That's what you're missing. Efficiently pagan. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's not very exciting. Although it did lead me very close to Wales, near the M4. Uh, anyway, so, uh, what have you done this week, Ben? Has it been exciting or interesting? Well, the week itself has been fairly fairly low-key, but at the weekend I went home... Fairly low-key? Wow, quite chaotic then. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Um, went home for my village pantomime. Which I may have mentioned on the podcast around this time last year. I think it's I, possible. I, I don't. can only assume that I would have done because it's always a fairly major component of my year. So uh, for those who weren't listening at that time or who just can't remember, uh, I have my village has had a pantomime every year as far as I know, basically for the last 40 years or more. Wow. Uh, my grandma used to direct it. Uh, and the current, and then transitioned to the current director, who has been doing it for 21 years this year. Uh, so it's a pretty long-running institution of the village, uh, and is very popular. And I was in it from the moment that I could sort of stand up, be trained in lines, and sing, uh, and only stopped when I left to go to university. Uh, um, so uh, who did you play then? Because you played a lot of people. People probably don't know on the podcast that you've had quite an illustrious acting career. 
compared to my acting to Korea. Well, yeah, there's, there's there's degrees of that. So I, my my debut role outside of the chorus, because the, the way it works is all, a large number of the, like, the local kids are involved in it. And the ones that sort of stay on for it kind of work their way up through the chorus, getting more and more lines every year. And then they transition into the adults who play all like the main characters. And there are quite a, there's quite a large stable of people who've done that. And now there's a, a sort of seven or eight of us who did that and then have all gone off to university and all come back for the pantomime on the Saturday night, which makes it an extremely fun and raucous occasion. Um, so my my breakout role from the chorus was as Black Spot, the dog in Treasure Island, who whenever the Black Spot was mentioned in the script would charge on and cause chaos. Which was right. I was going to say I don't remember this in the Robert Louis Stevenson version. This is this is the version of Treasure Island penned by my dad. Uh, wow. At, and is widely regarded as one of the best pantomimes they've ever done. So much so that they've now done it twice. Um, you should license the script to someone. Probably I may even you have them. I'm not sure. Uh, so that was that was the first one. I uh, what else was there? I was um, ratty in uh, Wind in the Willows. I got okay, to sing messing about good. on the river. That was fun. And there was a uh, another sort of cast member penned pantomime set in the Wild West where I played Injun Joe, which was one of my more racist roles. Yep, yep, uh, around that. But I guess uh, you don't have many Native Americans in your village, do you? Not, not a huge number. Some black people only moved in a couple of years ago. Um, Essex, making progress. <laughs> uh, I say that for Worcester, where I have no leg to stand on. And then I think maybe one or two years, me and my friend Tom, who sort of, we both have lived in the village our whole lives and we were in the pantomime the whole time together and uh, both our families are involved. We were sort of like the comedy double act, the sort of dim-witted guards type thing. So Those that two was always guys. good. That, I think that was the year. So uh, the pantomime has its own like Oscar type award. Um, this is really heavy duty. <laughs> I know. It's, it's really serious stuff given the overall quality of the actual show. Um, <laughs> but so on the, it is, it is this huge undertaken and everyone involved puts an awful lot of effort into, it. you know, they start rehearsing kind of as t towards the beginning of autumn and it's always at the end of January. And, you know, the, the set design and everything takes up a huge amount of time and all like people come and help out and run the chorus sessions and all this kind of thing it is, it is quite a big deal. And it runs sort of for four nights, including one matinee. Uh, so it is, it is very popular. And so every year they give this thing called the Wally Award, uh, which is named after a, a guy called Wally who used to be involved with the pantomime. Um, they give it to someone who sort of contributed the most this year or who is most deserving of the award. And one year, uh, I, me and Tom, very proud to win that award for kind of services rendered to the pantomime over the years. Which was also the year that after, at the after show party uh, on the Saturday night after the final show, there is an after show party where everyone kind of stands up and does their own little, does a little skit or sketch or song or something, which tends to become significantly more adult in its content than the actual pantomime. Uh, right. That was the year that me and Tom sung the hedgehog song. Uh, ah, yes, right. Or the hedgehog can never be. We can't say that on the air, can we? You, you've, you've got a bleep button, haven't you, Ben? Okay. The hedgehog can never be good at all. 
So there we go. Google. <laughs> Where you, that, well done for creating, letting people know what you were bleeping there, because otherwise it would have been a lot worse. I tell you what, we can put the poster for that in the in the show the, notes. I reckon. Put the lyrics in the show notes if you like. Um, yeah. So we went home for that this uh, this weekend. We went on the Saturday night. I, I took uh, Das Christina Fraulein along with me. Christine. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it needs it needs the 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 at the beginning. Uh, I don't. Uh, e Christine, <laughs> I think is what it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we went home for that. It was really good. This year was Aladdin. Uh, my dad that might be Spanish, actually. Come to think of it, my dad is the Dame because he. The the problem is like. The Dame is quite a difficult part. It has usually has the most lines of anyone. It, not everyone wants to do it. They're, they're usually reasonably strapped for male, like, adult actors anyway. And it does require, like, the, the point about the dame is not that you're playing a woman, is that you're play, you play it as a guy wearing a dress. You're supposed to yeah. play it as a man. Um, and not That's everyone... Is so terrible at being a dame. <laughs> not everyone entirely gets that. And because my dad's been doing it a long time and he is good at it, he always gets cast as the dame which is right. you know so, it's it's how fine can i get reputations for doing things like this when realistically <laughs> oh yeah no because uh, like, you you have played a woman haven't you ben not in the pantomime uh, but... no no at I school no at your all boys school no huh i really thought you had no i've been the closest the closest but... i ever came to playing a woman was at a like a, another village fate where they wanted to put on a production of like George and the Dragon and I was going to be the damsel in distress but then they realised what a terrible idea that would be so I got to be the dragon instead which I considered a significant upgrade <laughs> um, So thinking of dragons Ben I mean is there anything else you want to say? Not really, uh, we, we went to the show it was amazing, we went to the after show party it was fantastic uh, Yeah that was pretty much it pantomimes, they were awesome Hooray! So thinking of dragons, this week, my media of the week is from BBC Radio Wales, which is why we're having a kind of Welsh-themed episode, oh, as the cultural imperialists that we are, <laughs> me being kind of Anglo-Scots, you know, what are you, Ben? Probably uh, similarly, mainly English, with, with a bit of a dash of Scotch mist in there somewhere. Exactly. So, uh, you know, we're kind of the British hegemony, really. A bit Scottish, but not too Scottish, mostly English. <laughs> that's, that's that's the English kind of uh, the empire all through, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, is uh, the BBC Wales comedy show, I guess I listen to all the BBC Wales comedy show, there's not that many, uh, Ellis James's Pantheon of Heroes. Um which you don't have to be Welsh to enjoy. It may help. You may appreciate some of the jokes about Carmarthen uh, in a way that I won't. Um, but uh, it essentially is set up as uh, he's been given a grant by some Welsh arts trust to set up a garden of statues of the greatest Welsh heroes. And in order to do this, he has created a giant supercomputer with uh, comedy producer and writer Ben Partridge. And they try and figure out who are the most famous Welsh heroes and how they compare to the kind of English uh, equivalents. Oh, that is kind of cool. A bit of and also trying to claim people as Welsh because of loose connections. So in the Outlaws <laughs> episode, they're like, well, Jesse James's grandparents were Welsh, so he was basically Welsh. <laughs> it's like, okay then. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, and so they've done things like the, the Welsh dragon, Owen Glendower, the last true Prince of Wales. Um, and um, 
Ellis and Ben, they have this kind of wry sense of humour. It is a kind of double act thing going on with uh, Ben being the kind of underdog one. Uh, I don't know what that's like, really. Uh, <laughs> no, you and... really don't. <laughs> <laughs> we neither uh, of us particularly plays high or low status. We fluctuate like a... I think the audience seem to think you play the low status, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly when it comes to feedback, yeah. Um, well, that's well, fine. I think that's just because I'm more of a internet kind of whore than you. You are more of an more than internet. anything else. You don't tweet even close to as many times as I do. No. Um, I would say I have better things to do, but that's not... <laughs> I think that we all know not that that's not entirely true. true. Um, but yeah, it's really uh, funny. And uh, once again, I may have been talking about it online and the person who I keep accidentally stalking slash uh, sharing comedy about who I've only met once in real life was like, you listen to Pantheon of Heroes. I thought no one listened to Pantheon of Heroes. And it's like, let's just accept it. We have the exact same taste in comedy and we live in the same place. And we're the only people in the entire county slash region who share these tastes. <laughs> anyway, uh, so uh, yeah, it's really good. You should listen to it on iPlayer if it's still on iPlayer. No, no, can we not do this? I saw my I saw my friends actually. That's what I did at the weekend uh, that I'd kind of forgotten about because it was uh, you know traumatic events kind of block memories of happy events I guess because they're not primed. So they are more significant negativity effect. Yeah. Um, So I saw yeah all of my friends uh, down in London and maybe I realised that I'd accidentally stalked one person than I meant to, you know. All of my stalking is accidental, apart from one bit of stalking that wasn't accidental, but it was to find someone who I already knew. Is that stalking? I don't know. That sounds like the kind of thing Timothy Swan would say. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that was deployed quite well, but that, that was deployed way. very well. Um, so yeah, listen to Pantheon of Heroes. I don't think that would, you know, lessen the sentence in court, but you know, it, it's still worth doing. Mitigating circumstances, I might only be sent to a medium secure unit. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so it's an excessively Welsh show. Ellis James's first language is uh, Welsh. There's lots of Welsh in-jokes, but it's still really funny, even if you're not Welsh, or if you've just learnt about Wales through Welsh humour, because it is kind of that school of Welsh comedians who are all buddies and live together in London. On uh, the subject of, of, like, Welsh things being viewed by non-Welsh people, um, you may have heard uh, this would have been my media of the week were I to own a PlayStation 3, but a game came out this week called Nino Kuni, which is... Um, made significantly a significant amount of it has been made by studio ghibli the guys who did spirited away and my neighbor totoro and all those the famous animation studio yes i've got Uh, yeti on my hard disk i'm looking forward to it um and this this game nina kuni so it's it's very much in the style of classic final fantasy games but done with the art style and the storyline and the characters designed by studio ghibli and it's, it's only on ps3 I know, and it's getting absolutely incredibly good reviews, like rave reviews all round, which is infuriating because I desperately want to play it, and it's only on PS3. Platform everything. I know, I know, it's so annoying. However, 360, it can go on the other one, and it can go on PC. I'm really hoping that it will it will transition to PC at some point. But anyway, the point is that one of the most kind of critically acclaimed characters in it is the sort of sidekick of the hero who is uh, a fairy i think his name is drippy um oh, he's i think he's i know he's got this sort of long pointy nose with a little lantern hanging from it and has a strong welsh accent 
But isn't he voiced by actually Rod Gilbert? I think he may very well be voiced. If not, which Rod, I'd yeah. heard something about Rod Gilbert playing a fairy, and uh, I thought, well, that's a really politically incorrect uh, attempt to talk about some of his work experience shows. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Is that just like a, a, a rumour, one of those things, where it's like, it's a guy with a deep Welsh voice. No, it's Rod not Gilbert. Rod Gilbert. Ah. Stefan Rodri, apparently. Oh, but Stefan Rodri is a famous Welsh actor. Ah, well, there we go. And is like, you know, at least friend of a friend, because he's been in a Chris Corcoran show, and Chris Corcoran and Rod Gilbert are best friends. So, you know, it's not far off. So anyway, he's got this, he's got this Welsh accent, um, strong Welsh accent, which, you know, works really well. He's a very good character, apparently. Um, but it was really interesting listening to the Giant Bomb podcast, the Giant Bomb cast, which is, you know, an American gaming show and hearing them extolling the virtues of the, the, the voice acting in it, but being completely unfamiliar with the concept of Welsh as an accent. Uh, yeah. They were like, oh, I, I, he has this very odd accent. I don't know what it is. And one of them is like, oh, apparently that's that's a, a Welsh accent. And they were like, oh, I didn't know that was a thing. It, it, does, is there such a thing as a yeah, Welsh we're accent? very conscious of it in England, and there are you know varieties of Welsh accents. Yeah, um, apparently I, it is know. like a a sort of an excellent, a really good example of regionalisation because in the Japanese version, it's uh, an Os I think an Osakan accent maybe. Okay, yeah, it's like a, a very regionalised Japanese accent that the character yeah. has. In the German version, it's an Austrian, I guess, is like the equivalent. I suppose i don't know whether it's you know that's why arnie right so in german dubs of the terminator arnie isn't allowed to do the terminator because oh, it's really? like it's like the david prowse um <laughs> the david prowse as darth vader thing yeah. austria is like the west country or wales the kind of more <laughs> rural strongly accented area of the german speaking central europe I so see. it's not scary in <laughs> german so he's quite annoyed by that because he's like what you know i'm still a big terrifying guy who speaks german they're like no you're not terrifying in german <laughs> this may be an urban legend but i i, I believe it to be true having been to go. austria <laughs> on the subject of so what is your actual meter of the week <laughs> on the subject of parts of england one part of england is england and this week i've been listening to a lot of frank turner who is a sort of folk folk singer with lots of punk sensibilities but still pretty much just folk uh who sings who sings a lot of songs with a heavily anglocentric and sort of romanticized set kind of romanticized view of england he's really good um his album is his latest album i think is called england keep my bones it has some it's really really good i hardly recommend you try it we'll put some stuff on it in the show notes um i was slightly disappointed i confess to learn that he went to eton uh I can't judge a person by that i know you can't eton but... creates two types of people one of them is in cabinet or is called arthur and the other one is nice softly spoken almost apologetic for the fact of their privilege and generally really nice and that's yeah. the only two types of from the top public schools i've only met two types i've not met many extroverted but nice uh, public school people i can think of maybe mm. one well yeah it's it's an interesting one i he's he's got a very good very sort of honest direct lyrical style which i really like and some of his songs are sort of 
very, very understatedly moving and heart-wrenching in places. It's really, really good. I heartily recommend you give it a try. Plus, there's a song called The Englishman's Curse, which is this completely unaccompanied sort of English folk song about um, William the, Con the death of William the Conqueror's son uh, in uh, the New Forest. And yeah. it's just amazingly good. And if you, I'll see if I can find the video that, uh, of him doing it live because, like the the emotion in his voice when he sings it is fantastic. It's really, really good. So yeah, that's my media of the week. Not funny, but good. Yep, excellent. Um, so we are going to do some psychology. I can tell you what it is. I've got, I've written down what the actual titles of the audio bits from the thing. I was really well prepared. I thought I hadn't been. Wow. I was like, well, I can pull it together. And then I looked and I was like, oh no, I have actually prepared two whole f psychology sections for Franken podcasts already. Wow. Um, so what's coming up? So I'm excited to hear. Uh, social facilitation of humans, uh, chickens and social facilitation. Uh, some extra bits on vigilante justice, a bit about the psychological aspects of Heston Blumenthal as he meets with uh, Charles Spence, uh, how you can tell a Mormon face just by looking at it, and a little bit about uh, interesting ginger studies. Uh, <laughs> that's ginger hair, not ginger. The other one. Root. Uh, yes. Um, root, root. Um, but, not, the, uh, not the roots, the hair. That, but never mind. Anyway, uh, yes. Um, but we've got a little bit of time, and I realised there was a topic that last time there was a big announcement about it, um, we kind of held forth on. Um, I want to give this official Psychomedia verdict, J.J. Abrams directing Star Wars Episode Seven, yay or nay? So, Ben, yay or nay? I, I, I think yay. I mean, from, from what I've been reading around it, like, I, I really enjoyed the new Star Trek. Uh, I think that the his tendency to keep secrets about his shows potentially works very very well with something that's going to have this level of insane hype i'm obviously not everyone's going to be happy with whatever he comes out with but i think he's probably got as good a chance as anyone of pulling off something maybe not the most like fan specific but something which will appeal to fans and kind of casual star wars acquaintances alike yeah plus as empire did point out get simon Pegg in it well this is the thing is that jj abrams and simon Pegg, <coughs> they kind of i don't want simon Pegg to be in it for more than a cameo okay oh god no because no 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 like ghost protocol i really like it is maybe my second favorite Mission Impossible film. Obviously, the first one is the best. Um, but Simon Pegg is really annoying in it. Mm. Uh, you know, it's about Tom Cruise and Jeremy Renner, that film, mostly. Yeah. And um, so I do really like... I know that J.J. Abrams only, only exec produced that one. Mission Impossible 3 obviously has a really scary villain. It's a bit darker. Mm. And um, But yeah, he clearly did the both respect but not slavishly respect uh star trek um and i think if you think of super eight which i watched very recently and not in you know it was during the work in the snow it's like let's just watch dvd we just you know because it's snowy we can't safely go out so we've got to do something entertaining uh, for the residents of the house and um i thought this is like a sequel to et that is better than et 
it's not kind of mawkish in its sentimentality. It's got a lot of emotion in there, but it's also got good design, kind of really charismatic child characters who you're really kind of interested in rooting for. Remind me kind of of Goonies, you know, some of the best. Yeah. Essentially, J.J. Abrams is like the reincarnation of Spielberg. You well, know, he is... is his ultimate protege. And that means he's got all of the good aspects of Lucas because Spielberg mostly is like all of the good aspects of Lucas. I There was a very, another, again, on Empire, they, I think they pointed out something, and maybe I'm citing it wrongly, but somebody on the internet pointed out that in Super 8, what he demonstrated was his ability to uh, direct kind of in someone else's style. Yeah, yeah. And, and sort of adopt the, the mannerisms of... Spielberg basically specifically and yeah. whilst retaining you know his own his own kind of mark on the film so I think if he can and they also said you know that is what Lucas tried to do with the prequels and summarily failed to do he was trying to imitate himself yeah and didn't do as well whereas they also say you know that's kind of what I forget the guy's name who directed uh, Empire Strikes Back did uh Wait, there's Lawrence Kasdan, there's Richard Marquand, it's... Oh, was it Lawrence Kasdan? <laughs> I can't remember. Then one of, them is, one of them is the screenwriter who like okay. did the collaborations and made Empire and Return of the Jedi really good, and he's on board. Um, Which is awesome. And then there's one who died recently. Um, oh, well, I can't remember it. I'm not good with, like, out-of-universe Star Wars <laughs> trivia. You anyway, like, so... The actor who played this guy, I'm like... Well, no, but I can tell you who this guy's parents were in the fictional universe. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I am, broadly speaking, uh, positively oriented towards it. I mean, exactly. I if it's, it's going to be quite a long time. As like the Avengers or Star Trek, which were the kind of the movies similar from a company point of view and a director point of view. Yeah, I think it's going to be really good. It, you know, it's not going to be as good as the original trilogy because the original trilogy was not. OK, it wasn't original because it was this amazing synthesis of, you know, Kurosawa and Dan Busters and Star Trek, I suppose, you know. It was bringing all of those things together, and it was this unique fusion. Um, and it can't be unique, but it can be better than the prequels. So. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's difficult to sort of... Obviously, it's practically impossible to sort of objectively distance yourself from it, like... There is such a gap in, you know, technology and yeah. context and culture and everything between the time when the prequels were first released and now. Like, you, you can watch the prequels and... Uh, not, the, not the prequels, the original trilogy. You can watch them and see a lot that is wrong with them. And the internet spends a lot of time you know, going back and forth and people being like, oh, the Star Wars films are actually crap for these reasons. A lot of people who don't see them as children do think that. Yeah, and that, you know, for someone, you know, who comes to the original Star Wars films as an adult now and doesn't see what all the fuss is about, I imagine that that sort of person would come to whatever J.J. Abrams does with the new one and probably enjoy it significantly more just because... Yeah, they don't you know, have someone someone who had never seen the original Star Treks. Yeah. And then or came to them as adults. I, I saw I saw a couple of the original, you know, earliest Kirk and Spock episodes of Star Trek. And, you know, they they've got a charm to them, but they're not 
good on balance. No, like there are, there are many excellent and amazing aspects of them, but they're not good. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know my experience of Star Trek before really seeing the J.J. Abrams movie. Since then, I've seen the first two movies because I've got them all recorded and I'm watching them in <laughs> order with brother. Um, was a, you know watching episodes of the Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and occasionally Voyager, but uh, Voyager um, <laughs> as a child. And so I yeah. thought, well, this is quite a cool universe, but it's not Star Wars, you yeah. know. And so That's I was vaguely acquainted with it, and I wasn't really that acquainted with original series stuff, yeah. uh, apart from what's in the culture. Um, so, yeah, I think that's our thoughts on it. Let's hand over to ourselves doing psychology, and then we'll come back and tell you how <laughs> you can... It's a much uh, better way of doing things. Much exactly. Less All the work is done already. Isn't it great? We need to cl uh, I mean, enslave a, a pair of clones of us, or probably more than a pair of clones of us, to just do all the psychology stuff. Well, you think about how much procrastination those clones are going to do as well. <laughs> you can't clone out procrastination. There's no genetic modification for that yet. Give it time. Okay. Psychology, go! Physiological responses can be socially facilitated, although perhaps the mechanism behind it is slightly different. So there's a study by Martens in 69 called Palmer Sweating in the Presence of an Audience. Shock horror, people sweat more when there's an audience. Um, so this is... Are you saying that those Lynx adverts that are on at the moment about premature perspiration are, are, are actually based in fact, Ben? Because I might have to die if that's <laughs> the case. Let's assume not, shall we? <laughs> now this, obviously, sweating it isn't usually a task. <laughs> Thank goodness. However, the technique that they used to measure this was interesting they uh, use something called, well, so obviously one way to test uh, sweating behavior, kind of arousal, physiological arousal on the skin is galvanic skin response, which works on the idea that the more sweats you have on your skin, the more conductive your skin is. However, it's very equipment intensive, relatively equipment intensive. So they use an alternative where you just take a fingerprint of someone under various conditions but the fingerprint uh, powder or substance is moisture repellent. So if they're sweating more, you get a less complete print. And you'd basically just look at the amount of area okay. of the fingerprint that is non-existent. Did they test the correlation of that to GSR first? Uh, I don't think they did in this study, but I believe I'm sure that, okay. that they referenced previous studies when, when it's been done. That idea. Apparently it was relatively new in 1969. They report it being used to assess a number of things, this fingerprint task, uh, it's, was they talk about a study of leg extension, uh, as well as uh, people expecting surgery or flying light aircraft in formation. These obviously being the standard preliminary test of any new cycle <laughs> physical technique. Oh, anticipation. I was going to say, like, that's going to be tricky to stay in formation when a guy's trying to take your fingerprints. <laughs> stay oh, no, on no, target. That was, that was actually in... It was anticipating surgery, but it was actually during the uh, the light. Oh man, <laughs> that seems dangerous to me. It does seem fairly unwise. Anyway, I mean, maybe the leg extension was more dangerous. It all depends on the context. Anyway, so uh, audiences increase your sweat uh, tendency to sweat. Who knew? I guess that really just speaks to the point about arousal, not necessarily about task performance. Um, but anyway, there we go. So more more areas where this affects uh, where audience affects stuff. There's a study by Wapner and Alba, Alpa Wapner and Alpa in 1952, 
the effect of audience behavior on behavior in a choice situation. Uh, choose. Choose, exactly. They found that... Sorry, I've, I've been going back over our feedback for reasons. <laughs> and I saw the one about how you made someone nearly fall over when you said, choose. So I thought I'd throw it in as a surprise there. For, uh, it also gets any dogs very excited who might be listening. Anyway, uh, audience, uh, the presence of an audience increases the time it takes for you to make a choice. Uh, in this case, it was choosing the correct appropriate missing word from a sentence. Um, for some reason, the effect was stronger if the audience was unseen, which I didn't quite follow, but they, I think they interpret it in terms of increasing decision conflict. So when you've got an when you're on your own, you just come up with what you think is the better, best answer. When there's an audience that you can see, you know that there's kind of an implicit feeling that the audience will be judging you on your decision. But maybe when their audience, you can see the audience, you could, you feel like you could get some feedback from them as to whether you. Well, that's what I was thinking. Just thinking about how different that uh, play your cards right would be if the audience are concealed behind like a, you know, <laughs> well, I'm going to call it a one-way mirror, even though XKCD says there's no such thing. Uh, yeah. You know. <laughs> But I'm guessing that trying to kind of cross Brucey with uh, Darren Brown is not something we want to do. I, I think that may end up in the apocalypse. You no, know, an immortal persuasionist. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Anyway, so uh, yeah, uh, it affects the time it takes to make a choice. It also affects aggression. Barron, in 1971, uh, in his paper, Aggression as a Function of Audience Presence and Prior Anger Arousal, found that Generally speaking, uh, levels of aggression, aggressive responses, are reduced by the presence of an audience, but only... This might explain why the WWE is so weird when you see it live. I think there may be other factors there. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> However, this is only true if the audience is present during the instigative behavior. I'm fairly sure instigative isn't a word. The audience has to see the thing that has made you angry. If they don't see the thing that makes you angry then having an audience there makes no difference to how aggressive you are. Oh, it makes no difference. I thought it might end up facilitating. Well, yeah, yeah this, you know, this is peculiar. You, you fight at the weigh-in and it's just the officials there. Yeah. And you come into the ring with all this anger in you <laughs> and the crowd, you're like, yeah, I'm going to punch this guy extra hard. I assume that's how boxers think. I mean, it seemed to be, there seemed to be a number of ways that kind of armchair psychologically that could have gone. Yeah. So oh, maybe right, it's yeah. a, you're reporting empirical results. Maybe, Sorry, but that doesn't, you know maybe this is a limitation of the particular paradigm they used or their experimental design. Who knows? Anyway, aggression appears to be affected. Uh, there's also some kind of higher cognitive level stuff going on. So there's a study by Kurzban, Duscioli, and O'Brien in 2003. Audience effects on moralistic punishment, evolution, uh, in, published in Evolution and Human Behavior, basically. The presence of an audience, even just one person, the experimenter, increases the extremity of moralistic punishment suggested by participants in response to a moral violation. So that's kind of cool. That's interesting. Um, they actually, in this study, they forced some of their participants to carry out moral violations, in this case, trust violations in an economic trust game, which I thought was interesting as a tip. I mean, forced might be a strong word, given that they should have had the right to. Oh, well, yeah. Sure, but... <laughs> I know what you mean. Yes. Anyway, uh, uh, one more kind of physical activity. This kind of goes along. This is a more modern replication of the bike, bicycle pedaling, um, but more in terms of audience rather than just cycling as a group. 
uh, by Waringham and Messick in 1983, Social Facilitation of Running, an unobtrusive study. <laughs> uh, and to quote from their abstract, because it's basically the most parsimonious way of conveying this, 36 runners were inconspicuously timed while running along a footpath. One third ran the entire 90-yard length alone. Another third encountered a female seated with her back to the runner at the halfway point, near presence. The final third encountered a female facing the runner at the halfway point, evaluation. Only the last groups showed a significant acceleration. Uh, so, Which is weird, because any woman looking at me, whether in a photograph or in real life, just puts me off anything I'm doing. <laughs> Uh, useful to know. Anyway. <laughs> if you ever need to stop me, if I turn super villainous, <laughs> you know what my character no, is. women, my one weakness. <laughs> but specifically who are looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> They're cold, dead eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, women. Uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> so, women who listen to this podcast. I think, I think we don't need to restrict it to women who listen to this podcast. That <laughs> statement requires apology. I've offended more than just our listeners. Just, just over half the human race. Anyway, so I mean, that, however, this is a, a sort of good point. This did get me wondering about gender, um, reading this yeah. brief discussion. I, so I looked in the, the details of the study. And they report, and I quote, the uninteresting fact that men ran both sections of the path faster than women. And then they say there's no other sex effects, which slightly surprised me. I would have thought that male runners would be more susceptible to the mere exposure or maybe the evaluation. I don't know. But I suppose maybe for them, maybe there are gender effects, but they're just different gender effects that go in the same direction. So like for female runners, heterosexual female runners, it's comparison, you know, and for males, it's showing off. I don't know. It's different. You can't tell from the study. Yeah, there could be two different things that give like the same mathematical effect. Yeah. We'll talk about this and who you know, maybe later. Maybe. Who knows? Anyway, there. Uh, this raises the interesting question, I think, although it doesn't address it, of whether gender is influential here. And there are a bunch of studies on this. So uh, there's a study by Corsten and Coleman in 96, Gender and Social Facilitation Effects on Computer Competence and attitudes towards computers. They basically found that males in their sample did significantly better on a test of computer competence, usage, confidence, and anxiety compared to females. However, females did significantly better when they had a female audience than when they had a male audience. Right. So this suggests that, at least in some contexts, there can be gender effects. So there's a study by Forgas, Brennan, Howe, Kane, and Sweet in 1980 called Audience Effects on Squash Players' Performance. Uh, you would have thought, according to Zionist theory, that expert squash players would be less susceptible to crowd effects because presumably it would be less of a difficult task for them. Um, in, in this case, it's important to know that the, the novices and the experts were, I, I don't know if they paired randomly, but there were at least instances where you'd get an expert player with a novice player. Right. Um, because obviously an expert playing against an expert may be not so easy. However, what they found was that both pros and novices showed worse performance when presented with an audience, huh. an audience of either gender, which is kind of weird. Um, and maybe will be explained in the next study I'm talking about, which looks at the choking effect. Um, what Forgas et al. proposed in this study is that it might be due to the dyadic nature of squash. Uh, Given that these were casual recreational games rather than like 
uh, tournament games. The presence of an audience maybe encourages players to strive for a smooth performance like as a as a unit rather yeah. than individual glory, maybe. Who knows? Um, anyway, so the next study perhaps suggests an alternative position. Uh, the first study that I've written down here is by Evans and Marla and is called Food Calling an Audience Affected Male Chickens. Uh, their relationship to food availability, courtship and social facilitation, uh, which kind of balances uh, mating and food in a single study. Sounds awesome. Uh, it turns out chickens are not generally affected by audiences, male or female. Uh, the only time that that does happen is uh, male chickens where, will... Chickens make calling noises when they see food. This is a, a common thing that's going to come up in a bunch of these studies. Animals get excited about food and they like to tell other animals about it or just shout for joy. What do you think the human equivalent is? Nom, nom, nom. Yeah, I suppose. But that's an honest case. Nom, 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 nom. Nom, 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 nom. It's nom. The trouble with that is that I can't ever hear Big Ben's bells anymore. It's quarter to nom. Without hearing that and getting hungry. I'm really hungry right now. And I'm going to be talking a lot about food. Yeah, why did we do this at lunchtime when we've, there's food in the stuff? Yes, anyway, uh, so this is, uh, yeah, male chickens uh, call more when females are around and food is around compared to when there's just food or just females. But every other aspect of their calling is only affected by food. So chickens, boring. Uh, more interesting. Have I mentioned on the podcast before the idea that my supervisor had for a study based purely on the name of the paper that you could write for it that relates to what right-wing authoritarianism? No, but I'd be happy to hear it. Okay, so uh, right-wing authoritarianism is kind of what it says on the tin. It's, a, it's like a questionnaire measure of how much of a, an authoritarian sort of extreme right-wing leaning someone has. And uh, it's correlated, it's thought to correlate, and there's some evidence for it correlating with levels of testosterone in males, particularly. Another way of measuring levels of testosterone is by the, that we've talked about before, I'm sure, is about the index finger diff length difference. Oh, yes. Um, so if there is, a, I think it's a, a bigger difference between like your index and your ring finger or something like that, it denotes greater levels of testosterone. And uh, my supervisor wanted to conduct a study where you tested this and right-wing authoritarianism simply so that you could write a paper called Two Fingers to Right-Wing Authoritarianism. Right, that's pretty good. I thought it was going to involve the Nazi salute in some way. Uh, not that I know You know, of. you have to measure their, their fingers, but you can only do it when they're doing the Nazi salute. You could probably do some quite interesting embodied cognition stuff. Oh yeah, you could. Let's talk about that some other time. Let's. Shrews. Shrews. Oh, come on. I bet he can't enunciate well, right? He can enunciate it pretty well. Yeah, when he's shouting at you. He's a, he's a fairly eloquent gentleman. I think you I think you do Mr. Johnson a disservice, sir. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think of something that rhymes with cooking to suggest that his literacy skills are high. You know, can you spell what the rock is uh, cooking? I'm sorry, Tim. You, you carry on with the podcasting. I'm just going to go and let a cat in. <laughs> the funny thing is that Ben really means that. So oh, Highly unprofessional. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's authentic, really, isn't it? It tells you something about the way we record this. <laughs> it's gritty realism. <laughs> yeah, it's the kind of Frank Miller reboot of podcasting. Sorry, kitty realism, I should say. <laughs> uh, kitty, kitty pride. That's just doing the associative thing. Have you ever listened <laughs> to any of the KOL creators talking where like, their version of humour is just like word association? It is really funny, but it is basically all it is. 
Okay. I shouldn't say that because I'm hoping to get them to come and talk on the show one day. But anyway, um, we had a <laughs> physics teacher who loved those sort of jokes. And he did one, obviously he did what is the unit of power quite a lot. But the one I like the best is he'd get back a pile of exam papers and just kind of flick through them a bit and he'd go, oh, this Mark scheme's done very well. Uh, I think that's brilliant. That's I kind of <laughs> I respect I salute up. that. I respect that. I don't think it's funny or good. <laughs> You've never heard that joke before? Come on. No, genuinely haven't. I I count myself lucky that I avoided that one. Uh anyway, misconduct miscondus My voice is really going with the vowel sounds today. I know my vowel Take... sounds are always bad. I'm putting them like on everything. You've got irritable vowel disorder. Oh, it's funny because I've actually got irritable vowel syndrome. A painful, is... chronic condition that has no cure. Which is less funny. <laughs> but also, I can't pronounce things. Uh... Um, some quick research actually reveals that this relationship is somewhat asymmetric. Heston <laughs> is the only celebrity chef that, as far as I'm aware, Professor Spencer's worked with. But Heston has worked with five professors two of whom managed to get him a Doctor of Science, and one of whom got him a MSc. So Spence is really going to have to find him an actual working fellowship to uh, beat that. Or, or just some nice crisps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's what you get Heston Blumenthal as a gift. It's like, oh, I got you this food stuff. Oh, no, I, I, I strongly believe in that. When I, when I used to work in a wine shop, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later, uh, a girl came to uh, work for us temporarily who was the daughter of or possibly the like niece or something of um, the Henschke family. Henschke is one of the top uh, wine producers from Australia. So she was, you know, like wine royalty almost. Um, and we did a secret Santa at Christmas and I took great pleasure in buying her a uh, can of Tesco's red wine. <laughs> in a can just yeah for the so that she, you know you know that the british wine industry is flourishing just as well yes i seem to remember that if you do blind taste testing <laughs> yeah it's blind tasting is meant to be that you do it blind not that the tasting blinds you <laughs> <laughs> yeah methanol content uh, <laughs> i i seem to remember that with a lot of things blind taste testing usually leads to preferences for cheaper things but whether it goes far as down as the can of wine, I somehow <laughs> doubt. <laughs> yeah, potentially. Box wine, maybe. Can wine, no. <laughs> right, well, I guess I should talk about some different sort of face perception. Let's do it. Who knew religion would be all about face perception? But it <laughs> is. Uh, yes, this is the revenge of Nicholas O'Rule. Um, it's not really revenge. It's just return. You know, they changed the title. That's a very niche, niche Star Wars joke. Right, the next one is going to be Nicholas O'Rourke Revelations. Uh, yeah. Reloaded or whatever it's meant to be. Uh, yes, um, we are back on Nicholas O'Rourke following up from gender perception, if you remember our episode on embodied cognition, along with his partner in science crime, Nalini Ambardi. I love her name. Uh, <laughs> and there's a third author on this paper, James Garrett, who is not pulling his weight in the namesakes. Sorry. Uh, now, sex is obviously, for the most part, a physical difference, and you'll notice that I dodged saying gender there. Um, but there are a number of important group memberships that are not physical. 
barring conflation, and I almost typed conflagration, I got completely stuck on it. It's like, what is that word? I couldn't get past conflagration. I'm clearly a pyromaniac. With I had a, a problem with that later on uh, with the word. Um, I can't even remember the word. It's the thing that like uh, like religious or uh, it, like demons and things do when they they come to life in the world. Uh, oh. I've got it written down somewhere. I'll tell you what it's it is the... when I come up to it. Okay, it's like, it's I don't like know manifestation, but not. Okay, fine. I'll look out for that. Uh, with ethnic groupings, there's no obvious way to spot a member of a particular group from their physical appearance, barring very specific examples. You know, I'm thinking stigmata. Uh, <laughs> unless you extend it to dress, in which case it should be obvious, say, that my father, who last week was called on to cover a service at a much more traditional Anglican church, he was dressed in a chasuble, which is a sort of cape, but seriously, the design of the material looked, made him look like a superhero. A logo on the chest and kind of black bands pointing towards <laughs> it on a red back basically looked like Nightcrawler's X-Men uniform. But that's not really a physical distinction, that's clothing. So, building on their finding that one can tell sexuality with high confidence with very little facial detail, uh, Ambardi and Rule and uh, Garrett logically jumped to thinking about Mormons. Clearly, they'd been reading Orson Scott Card. Anyway, Mormons apparently have this folk belief that they can spot other Mormons by physical appearance differences. Um, I thought it might be like the little badges the missionaries wear that say Church of the Latter-day Saints. No, uh, it was that or trying to make a uh, golden plates joke, and I couldn't figure out how to do that, and Wikipedia is really distracting. Uh, now, a study that they'd already reported in the introduction found that this is indeed the case. Not only um, people, despite not knowing which faces are which in which group, show an in-group memory effect, they also are explicitly better at categorizing the individuals as Mormon or non-Mormon than chance. So there must be, say Rule et al, a salient difference powering this. What could power it? This successful identification by members and non-members of a religious group. Well, Mormons are physically different. I'm not talking about the robotic Mitt Romney, uh, who I'd hope that most Mormons, or at least the couple I know, would be ashamed of. Anyway, that's my diatribe about the religious right. <laughs> there was an article recently on the Daily Kos, which... It's a pretty, pretty cutback diet. Right? Well, yeah, there was an article recently on the Daily Kos oh. by an atheist that declared you cannot be a Christian and a Republican. And while I'm loath to judge, the values of the two groups do seem increasingly incompatible. Anyway, protein supplement. That's what I'm going for next, by the way. Taking any curds to the next level. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. Whey anyway, protein Jesus. supplement. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what it involves is a health difference. Mormons are a religious group with strict, or at least by Anglican-Americano chugging standards, dietary laws. No caffeine, no alcohol. <laughs> Is there alcohol, a chugging no standards tobacco. agency? <laughs> uh, there should be, and it should go to frat parties. It should. And this has an impact on their long-term health. They have lower risk of cancer, they have lower mortality. This is considered due to the lack of substances, regular exercise and a good diet, early marriage, and regular church attendance. Those are the factors cited by Ruler Al as leading to longevity. And that's a difference of six. Regular church attendance? Yeah. Uh, this is a diet difference of six to ten years in one recent longitudinal study of life on Mormons compared to non-Mormons. So, well done, guys. And the team put two and two together and suggested that these factors might be linked, that maybe being much healthier will lead to discernible physical differences. So it might be that it's very difficult to tell Mormons apart from ethnically similar Europeans who might have a healthier diet than an American control group. For example, uh, let's have a look at, as Rule did, attractiveness. This is one that will distress me in my current state halfway along the road to looking like Alexander Litvinenko. 
Um, seriously, my, my, my body is falling apart. Basically, judgments of health from high-resolution close-ups of patches of people's skin were correlated with overall attractiveness ratings for the full face. Similarly, rating of body weight from just the face, that is to say the fattiness or adiposity of the face, successfully match BMI and various other measures of cardiovascular health. And I suppose it goes back to that evolutionary thing of advertising genes by visual means. A healthy person has a sexy face. Symmetry around the vertical axis is apparently a really good sign for this, which is why witches with a boil on their nose are so unattractive. It's indicating a health problem. Warts, mostly. Um, so the team are basically doing an expansion of that first study that is going to elucidate which features underlie the differences. So they got their Mormon and non-Mormon faces from personal ads, as they often do, and they only included people who were either active Mormons or actively religious but not Mormon. They made sure that there was no clothing or jewellery confounds. Apparently, Mormons don't tend to wear more than one earring per ear. Who knew that that was like, <laughs> spot a Mormon, wearing only one earring per ear must be a Mormon. Obviously not, yeah, but you know, few goth or punk or Mormon. Apparently not. Uh, and then they. But that's reason, and that's reason alone. Exactly. <laughs> they then standardised the photos, and after this, they did pre-testing with what they called naive research assistants, which I quite like as a phrase, to ensure that they weren't having any distracting emotional faces. Uh, then they had some students, none of whom were Mormon, rate the faces for mormantinantinism, which is the official noun, and mormantinantinism. Ah. Uh, it's not really. This confirmed, in case you hadn't guessed, but this confirmed that people could... I genuinely hadn't. Really? I will put You'd very believe anything past, I tell you so about apologies. the Church of the Latter-day Saints, wouldn't you? Basically, yes. Yeah, well, that's because a lot of it seems quite implausible. <laughs> or strange. Let's put. Let's say strange. It's less judgmental. Um, and basically, it confirmed that people could tell them apart by facial experience. So they followed this up by cropping to various key features of the face, which revealed that eyes hairstyles and mouths, which normally are enough to distinguish social groups, could not distinguish Mormon from non-Mormon. And I'll show you a picture in the show notes of all the different crop stimuli, because it is quite interesting. So it's kind of Mormon or Lessman. <laughs> that sounds like a show that should be hosted by uh, Bruce Forsyth, you know, like The Price is Right. Yeah, it does. Uh, uh, I'm not quite sure what it, it... I mean, unless it's sort of like a polyg polygamic? Polygamic? Yeah, I've avoided any reference to polygamy, because they gave up that practice a very long time ago. Ah, oh, well that's okay then. Anyway, writing Mormon this many times has not start stopped me wanting to write it as merman. <laughs> Do mermen have different facial structures? You know, the tail is a giveaway, but if you can't see the tail, if it's just cropped around the face. Anyway, uh, it's, they've got a barnacle. Gills don't help. <laughs> yeah. And they only wear one earring. <laughs> yes. Now, skin and facial structure were in fact the measures needed to distinguish Mormons. They had their participants rate these faces for levels of health and of spirituality, which is an interesting one to be asked. I've kind of wondered this, having done this research, about myself and Ben. If you saw our faces, what would you guess for the religious category? Because, to be fair, Ben, you do kind of look like a pagan some of the time. Well, this is the thing. Someone in my undergrad years, someone told me that they thought I looked like Jesus, which I, is yes, patently untrue. So very, very Jewish, you know? Uh, shut up. You don't, anyway, that's the point. That's the yeah, point. No, I, I, can be that you don't look like Jesus. Yeah, I mean, unless you're actually standing with your mouth slightly open and eyes upturned in an expression of devotion, then I, I'm not quite sure how this works. But maybe it does. Who knows? Yeah, and I don't know what I look like—a fool. But 
Why are wool? It previously established this. Yeah. What is the spirituality of why are wool? Did you ever see that uh, Gary Larson cartoon of uh, the... There's a, a bunch of sheep and they're all like wearing black leather and they've got piercings and look really, really mean and just standing around looking intimidating. And the quote is, the sheep from which we get wire wool have no natural enemies. <laughs> no, I have not seen that one. But now I have a picture of it in my mind in the style of Larson. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so like, it's kind of amazing that you could rate someone for spirituality. What's even more amazing is that Mormons were rated successfully, and again, this is blind rating, as more spiritual and more healthy. So, there's partial but not complete mediation by health which even though the authors means that it's all explained away by health, is still interesting because it's not, because it's a separate, like the thing remains significant when you factor in the mediation. It's partial mediation. How can you tell that someone's spiritual? Is it, you know, brow furrowed from prayer or eyes shiny from charismatic ecstasy? You know, it's <laughs> worth investigating. I think it's quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. And so for the last part, they had participants rate attractiveness, facial symmetry and skin texture. They also checked about the participants' knowledge of Mormon healthiness, comparing them with Protestants, the standard Mormon outgroup, apparently. And there were no significant differences between Mormons and non-Mormons on attractiveness, skin texture, or facial symmetry. Nor did the faces, when analysed by the computer to judge skin tone or body weight, show any significant differences. So they then built a mathematical model, but it didn't explain anything. Eventually, they found <laughs> a slimmer model that focused on skin and the other skin factors. And that predicted group membership and spirituality mediated via health. So skin colour and texture seem to be the factors revealing the Mormons. There's no word here on whether all of these Mormons were from Utah, you know, mm. which might have an impact here. That is potentially an issue. People did tend to know that Mormons were healthier. So somewhere underneath, they're piecing that together. But when estimating their accuracy, that never correlated with their actual accuracy. So it's kind of applying subconscious knowledge of some sort. And clearly, this is for a very specific religious group, rather than religious versus non-religious, or what I always think is better than group categorization, which is the one we did when studying religion and terror management theory, is religiosity. Yeah, and the cool yeah. thing is that these participants were from Massachusetts, and they didn't know many Mormons, and they could still tell the difference. So maybe it's certainly related to conscious knowledge. The one I'd like to see a follow-up is comparing Indian Hindus and Muslims, because they have you know different dietary requirements, but otherwise are from a similar population. What... Um... I don't. I know this is nitpicking, but uh, what were the stimuli they used? Uh, faces. And how many? Uh, a f I can't remember. A, a good number. I can okay. try and check quickly. If oh, it's fine. Check line. There is. Yeah, it's fine. It's a, it's a very minor point, but there is um stimuli. There is a, it was forty in each category by gender. So forty. Mormon men, 40 Mormon women, 40 non-Mormon men, 40 non-Mormon women. So that's quite a good amount. It's not bad. I mean, yeah, it, it, there is a, a, a statistical thing about uh, experiments that when you're, you're putting together an experiment, you always sample your participants from a population and you select a sample in such a way that you ho it hopefully represents a population at large. Yeah. But what rarely happens is that you sample your stimuli which is particularly significant when you're using, for example, images of faces, because what you're essentially saying is we are using these faces as a way of representing yeah. the entire now, of this population. I will defend them on this point. They got all of their faces from other naive research assistants and just told them to get faces that were like religious and that. 
Yeah. Um, so, so they it, tried their best to put as much gap between them and the selection of stimuli as possible. Sure. Um, so they they seem like they've done a very good job, and that you shouldn't know, be an issue possible, here. But it's plus the, the size, the sample size is good. The fact is that you can test this, uh, the kind of variance of your stimuli um, through a relatively easy statistical technique, which I won't go into because I don't understand it fully because I only had it shown to me last term by some guy who came to give a talk, uh, a guy called Charles Judd, who sort of semi-invented it. Right. Um, well, definitely but, worth considering, but yeah, you can't. But they seem to, have done, as I say, they seem to have done a pretty good job with their stimulus selection. So it'll be an interesting one to follow up, and I think the just detection of spirituality is interesting. Very much so. Uh, so, yes. Right. Well, I hope you enjoyed the psychology, everyone. I left about right, a three-second gap there. <laughs> we're transitioning directly, are we? Okay. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, we are. Ben wasn't but, aware that we were going to do this. But man, that was some brilliant slash joker slash awful psychology delete as appropriate. Yeah. Um, I, I've just written, because I've written Mormon faces as one word. I've kind of got Lady Gaga in my head. <laughs> <laughs> can read my, can read my, you can read my Mormon face, <laughs> even at a subconscious level. It's um, got so many wives. <laughs> it's not, like, as someone who have a cu- has a couple of friends who are Mormon. Papa-polygamy, like, papa-polygamy. I mean, that's like saying about English people that they're all still really... Oh, wait, no, that's not, not a great example. Cause we don't really... <laughs> like saying about American people that they all want to keep slaves, which is only true of half of Americans. And, you know, they, they stopped wow. that over 100 years ago. Just wow. <laughs> and kicked out all the people. Uh, it's like, you know, uh, decrying most uh, people in, like, the Anglican and Catholic churches still believing in young earth creationism. Anyway. <laughs> Knights move. Knights move. That's a Frank Skinner phrase. all the bears. <laughs> Hit all the beehives. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, um, incidentally, The Guardian has been reporting on the um, Richard Dawkins versus Rowan Williams debate in uh, the Cambridge Smackdown. Union which uh, well yeah it was a smackdown Rowan Williams like he might not be able to keep the Anglican Church together but he can still smash a professor of the public understanding of science any day of the week <laughs> oh, um, it, well, yeah. I, I haven't been reading about it what, what? he won like by a factor of like you know and I can't imagine the Cambridge like audience was necessarily that receptive but the um god slash religion team won by like 350 votes to 120 mostly because dawkins is quite obnoxious but he did make a dick joke and that's what the guardian reports like dawkins massively loses debate but he did make a dick joke maybe he could become a comedian instead and that's literally the article i'm like wow discourse discourse guys well done yeah. that's <laughs> that doesn't promote anyone's understanding of science or religion no Although I think it is possible Maybe he should change his name to the of pub- science or, and religion via dick jokes. Yeah, professor for the public understanding of dick jokes. Also, <laughs> I remember back in an earlier episode of uh, Psychology where you uh, got upset at me for using the word dick and then subsequently I've had to bleep it out. So... Well, I figure if it's in the Get garden. on your bleeping and editing. <laughs> oh, that's the joy of being an editor. <laughs> I'll use the really rubbish one that is just me saying bleep. <laughs> Please do. We've got that there somewhere. Um, oh, we need so, to yeah. get that on the soundboard, actually. Yeah, we do. Um, I've not had my chance to use the Exemplum song, or BBC4 Extra has not repeated the Exemplum song as played by Tim Minchin yet. Those are things I'm both very sad about. Uh, if you want to contact us and feed into our feedback, uh, 
in which will apparently will sing songs based on what you've said. That's not a promise. Uh, it's a threat. Um, then you can contact the show. The best place to do that, in my opinion, is psychomedia.wordpress.com because there are pictures, there's praise for the show, there's tweets, there's Facebook, so you can jump to those. Uh, it's now ordered into year one and year two because I've clearly been reading too many DC comics. Um, yeah. Oh, God, are we going to have a psychomedia crisis at some point? <laughs> Well, I, or I, I, whenever something kind of bad but not that bad happens, I do tend to say, oh, Infinite Crisis on Infinite Earths, which Plus isn't even can, one of the titles. We can do, like, uh, we can do alternative universe psychomedias. Like, like, we could do a psychomedia pantomime at some point. Okay, so, like, uh, in Earth 2, like, in Earth 1, I'm the Power Girl equivalent, and in Earth 2, I'm the Supergirl equivalent? Is this what you're saying? <laughs> did, you, did you know that there's a superhero called Squirrel Girl? Uh, yes, and that I she's did. astronomically she's powerful. She's like the woman equivalent of Deadpool. I think they may have teamed up because <laughs> she does be know that she's in a comic. I think as well. That would be incredible. And yes, yeah, she's like the like canonically one of the most powerful heroes in Marvel. <laughs> I, I found that interesting actually reading um, Siege about uh, the Sentinel. Yeah, who is this Marvel superhero who I'd never heard of, but is like canonically no one knows how powerful he is. Uh, and it's sort of going left and right, slaying gods left, right and centre. And his like signature move is to just rip someone in half. It's like, wow, how have I not heard of this guy? He might end up, I don't know, being somewhere in Guardians of the Galaxy. They've got to fit in all of these obscure heroes in there mm. somewhere. Anyway. Um, yeah, Psychopedia. Yeah. How else can people contact the show? <laughs> Uh, they can go on the Facebook page, which will have incidental updates with random stuff on Facebook.com's Facebook. Facebook.com, it's the chicken equivalent. Facebook.com slash psychomedia. And uh, also there's Twitter, at Team Psychomedia, at Tetrarch Angel. Real time, up to the moment, everything that passes through my head. And occasionally Ben puts something up. And you can, uh, if you really want to, uh, you can send an email to the moth-infested moth and cobweb-ridden Gmail account. <laughs> <laughs> psychomediapodcast at gmail.com to keep the spam company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we could do with some tinned peaches uh, <laughs> in our, you know, underground shelter. It's the, um, the email equivalent of a nuclear bunker. Yeah, basically. Um, so, yes, and until next week, uh, when we will probably be back, um, and we might have something that we've done together this week to talk about, uh, goodbye, everybody. Uh, so Ben, so I've got a new test to try on you here. Oh, awesome. It's the uh, Welsh accredited standardised heroism inventory and naming guide, or washing. I, I do love a good personality profile. Hit me. I know it's great, isn't it? Um, so, uh, question one: On a Likert scale of one to seven, how Welsh are you? Uh, Petwar. Okay. Hey, we did Welsh numbers in the past. Good callback. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I, I, are you? I think heroic? I pronounced it well. Any Welsh listeners, tell me if I pronounced Petwar right. Can, can we not? not have our Welsh listeners tell us how the pronunciation is? Because I'm going to no. be in a lot of trouble. Um, <laughs> are you heroic? Yes or no? Uh, Anti-heroic? Is that an option? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. It only has yes or no. That's the problem with standardised tests. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm well. I yeah. They really should be on a Likert scale, so there is a don't know option. But I suppose it might be forced choice. In which case, I will say yes. Okay. Have you appeared on cheap tourist tats sold to the hated English? Uh, no. Unless you okay. count the fells, my namesake, in which case almost certainly. Well, yes. No, I'm thinking like proper tea towels with pictures of you standing astride a mountain and stuff, I think. <laughs> Based on I story. have straddled many mountains, but I've never been pictured on cutlery. Yeah. <laughs> I've been to Wales, but I've never been to me. Um, so uh, then there's a, the next section. Uh, Bethu I Kenu, uh, which uh, my extensive Welsh knowledge tells me, what is your name? Uh, I, uh, hang on, but it'd be it would be uh, Ben Fell. <laughs> I think it's uh, Benville. Benville, uh, I see. Okay, and then uh, Bethu I Koflu, <laughs> uh, which is what is your favorite color? Uh, well, probably uh, what's what? Hang on, let me Google it. Uh, actually. <laughs> When I when I googled African in Welsh, I got deeply undesired responses. But let's try. Uh, Oren. Okay, and then Bethu Kevleme Esbeth. Oh right, you've changed your mind. Can I ask this question again? Yes. Bethu Kevleme Esbeth Venolmidu. African or European. Oh, that, 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 they've actually got a category for that. How odd. <laughs> okay, uh, so uh, two more questions. Uh, if confronted by a raging dragon, do you A, run away in terror, B, charge with lance drawn, or C, invite it to join your male voice choir? Dragons are known for their scintillating trebles. I, I think C, because that isn't. <laughs> because, I mean, uh, you know, the. the uh... The Oxford male voice choir is is, is sadly lacking from a, a reptilian treble, so that would probably do best. Yeah, ever since one of our friends left. Um, <laughs> also, the last time I charged with my lance drawn, I got in trouble with the police. <laughs> well, the thing is that you shouldn't do Pictionary while on steroids. And finally, <laughs> you, like Owen Glendower, uh, return in Wales' hour of greatest need. <laughs>